Welcome to Ontario Lab, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Sam Andre. I'm Alexi White. And I'm Garima Talwar Kapoor. Friends, it is the last pod of 2020. Oh my god, you have real air horn noise. This is so fun. Amazing. You were so cute up. I love it. Yes, I was. Uh, we have a full soundboard episode this week, and I've learned how to turn the sounds off, which is different from the last time we had soundboard sounds. Uh, key to the soundboard is knowing how to make the sound stop. Uh, but yes, we have made it. We are at the end, and on our year-end pod, we will look back on the year that has been, talk about some things we appreciated, some things we are worried about, and generally reflect on where we are at in the world of Ontario politics. Uh, this year, I admit that feels like a slightly bigger task than it has the past couple times we've done this, but we are going to give it the old college try anyways. Okay, well, maybe let's dive in and take stock of 2020, uh, or uh, the year that we all learned that breaking in sweat pants could indeed be an art form that achieved new heights um maybe just starting uh sorry uh obviously it's been dark uh we've started dark uh so let's just keep going but maybe i want to reflect on some of the good things that happened uh first um before we you know maybe uh do a little bit of more worrying i can reflect on uh some of the good things i mean if there's a silver lining for me it's that the provincial government has had to abandon its uh, otherwise terrible instincts um for on the majority of public files anyway they're still doing some shady things on the side but uh, they've had to invest billions of dollars. Uh, they've had to um, avoid uh, cutting back social programs. Um, they've had to um, think about uh, how to uh, support a whole bunch of people who otherwise um, they would probably have uh, uh, just allowed to go about their lives in the, the vagaries of, of our, uh, our normal lives. Uh, and it's just good to see, I think, the um, some of the realization setting in that uh, that the only way to respond to these kinds of uh, huge dislocations is through a much more activist government approach and that a lot of the sort of traditional conservative ideology does, doesn't work, doesn't fit. Um, and on the upside, at least this government has, uh, to some extent, I mean, obviously we quibble and we are always pushing for, for more action. But on the whole, uh, Ontario's, um, you know, making investments, trying to, um, to help people, the messaging is, uh, at least, is one of coming together as a as a province, uh, and um, and I think you know for every year that Doug Ford is premier, that we don't end up cutting deeply into programs that people uh, really um, rely on in normal times. That's a a good thing that should be celebrated. Yeah, I I think well, ditto what Alexi said, but I think on top of that, and this is this might sound a bit perverse, but. I think the stark realities of inequities uh, coming into sharp focus for me, I think if there's anything from this year and as gross as they are, I think they've become undeniable. And so, you know, yeah, a lack of investments in our social systems, in our public systems uh, led us to a path in 2020 that required significant investments to just fix, um, you know, and just like band-aid solutions at this point to some of our systems. And, and so I think, I do think that, that these inequities coming into sharp focus really matters and is, is good because it 
I hope it shapes how people engage in in politics moving forward. Who got to stay at home and stay safe um, while working from home versus who lost their jobs? Who are essential workers that enabled us to get our groceries and Amazon orders and medicines? Um, It's all become really, really, really clear. And so if we do want a a stronger and more resilient and really socially just society, then I think think that this year hopefully has changed the hearts and minds of, of more people than ever before. And I'm hopeful about that. Yeah, I think just building on those, I think that the George Floyd and Black Lives Matter movement um, in the summer that spilled over into Canada was a real game changer that will have um, lasting impact on the way we talk about race in Canada, or at least feels like it has, um, which I think is uh, you know, a positive step forward. Um, and, you know, we, a thing we talked about on the pod was the streaming announcement that the government made around grade nine, um, academic and applied courses, um, that came as really a direct response to that, to that movement. Um, I think is an example of the policy change that could come as a result of, of that. And so, um, but I think I, I'm observing, you know, a much more, a much more direct consciousness about anti-black racism in particular in Canada. I think that, that and people are like naming and talking about it and uh, hopefully doing something about it uh, much more than before. And I think, I think that is a positive thing to come out of 2020. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with uh, all of that. And I, while you were, you're talking, Grima, I was thinking it's like, you know, these social assistance debates in the past where like, conservative movements have been able to demonize people who live on social assistance. I mean, you know, what percentage, like how many Canadians now know someone who is the direct recipient of government aid or lost a job because of something that was out of their control? Or, I mean, I just think that like there will be long-term social implications to what we've gone through, good and bad, but no longer are people who have received help from the government a group of people over there that are so easily demonized. Right. And I, I am, th- that was something that w- while you were talking, I was, I was thinking about also uh, going back to the before times, uh, super cool. The teachers landed uh, agreements that were um, I think l- way better than the ones the Ford government wanted to land with them. So, you know, real big win for the teachers that started off the year almost immediately uh, bowled over by COVID. Also, uh, de-streaming. I mean, you know, we uh, seeing the Ford government in some way get behind the concept of de-streaming, I think, is a real step forward uh, for not just good policy, but social justice. And, you know, I, I know, Sam, you're uh, deeply involved in that work. And we've seen advances on climate and child care adopted at the federal level. So, yeah, some definite, some definite good stuff in in 2020, and it's it's worth thinking of. Um, uh, I think particularly as we just are prone to reflect on so much darkness around us. But I mean, I think in many ways it is also impossible to talk about 2020 without acknowledging that it was a dark year and that um, there were a lot of setbacks that I think people received personally and in policy and in politics this year. And I'm curious when you look at the the whole when we think about the year as a whole what was the most worrying trend the most worrying thing that we saw happen although i'm hopeful that people are more aware of the inequities in our society and the role that government actually has to play in creating a stronger and better society i was i am still to this day just i cannot believe um 
that despite what we understand about who still has to go into work um, as essential workers, whether they're working in packing plants or whether they're working in uh, pharmacies or whether they're working in distribution centers, that we don't have paid sick leave in Ontario. I just don't understand how if congregate workplace settings are, continue to be a, a source of transmission for COVID-19, how we're not actually just nipping that issue in the bud. There's been jurisdictional hot potato between the feds and the provinces on this, and it doesn't necessarily need to be like that. And if we can't resolve these issues in the midst of a global pandemic, um, I just don't know when we will. And for me, that the realities of what is happening in the labor market um, don't actually match what this government has done from strengthening labor laws perspective. And that for me is worrying. Sorry, I was muted. Um, yeah, I completely agree with Grima, and I, especially on that last point around labor laws. Um, that really uh, is a great segue into what I wanted to talk about on this, this question around things that I'm worried about. And um, to me, what we saw a lot this year, especially from this government, has been this uh, continued uh, emphasis on putting the interests of business and wealthy people ahead of the interests of society as a whole. And I think the um, the issue of a complete lack of paid sick leave, for example, uh, is one, uh, one small example of that. But we've seen this explosion in the use of ministerial zoning orders uh, and weakening of conservation authorities recently, which has allowed or is going to allow developers to run amok uh, in and across our municipalities. Uh, there was changes to the Residential Tenancies Act, tipping power further toward landlords away from uh, renters at a time of deep uh, uncertainty in the lives of so many renters who are, of course, predominantly much poorer than homeowners in Ontario. Uh, there were more permanent business tax cuts as part of the budget, uh, which are not temporary, uh, you know, aimed at uh, stimulus in the short run. These are permanent losses of revenue, which will make it harder for us to sustain public services over the long run. Uh, and then again, just on the COVID approach in general, uh, an inability to uh, to see the economy and the well-being of individuals as as linked together, uh, and to continue to see this dichotomy of uh, we must save the economy over um, responding to the pandemic, and um, these things are just they seem so ingrained in the conservative movement still, and the way this government operates, and um, that is uh, definitely a worrying trend that continues. Maybe just picking up on on that, I think in terms of worrying things ingrained in the conservative psyche. I mean, we talked about it on our on our last pod, but I think the continued disregard for the environmental movement and willingness to um, undermine it through their recent stuff uh, around housing and conservation authorities. Um, but it doesn't, you know, stop there. Obviously, the response to the carbon tax recently was another great example of that. Like, I just think if there was an opportunity for the conservative movement to pivot off of what was a key wedge uh, for them because of the reset of COVID. They clearly are not taking that opportunity and continue to see it as something that they can win on. And for someone who would like to, you know, have a healthy planet for the rest of his life, uh, it's, you know, worrisome uh, that we can't yet move off of this wedge and start talking about how to accomplish our climate goals as opposed to whether we should or not. Did you see Rex Murphy's yeah. column in the National Post this weekend in which he, I mean... No, I have a policy of never clicking on those links. <laughs> <laughs> 
he was literally his his argument was the conservatives federally are doing too much of what you are were just saying. They're 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 um, quibbling over how to get to net zero instead of what they should be doing, which is questioning whether net zero by twenty fifty is really needed and whether this is all just overblown. That's what the conservatives should be doing. Which is of course what they're fucking doing, just with pretty <laughs> words, but sure. If you want to make a basic point and stretch it into seven hundred words that um nobody uh can understand, um the best thing to do is to give the topic to Rex Murphy. Um or Conrad Black. Or oh my God. Did you see Conrad Black was out denying the results of the US election? I was like, oh geez. Of course he was. He's got to pay back his pardon somehow. Oh my God. <laughs> Chris, what's your worrying trend? My uh, my worrying trend is the space that people like Rex Murphy and Conrad Black take up in my brain uh, at times. Uh, But no, actually, I mean, I not to put too much point on, but like we have, uh, and you guys have touched on this like several times. Like there have been, I can't remember an issue actually in recent memory where there has been so much empirical, irrefutable evidence as with COVID. More so than many issues, a acceptance that scientific truth is what we should be paying attention to. I mean, it's more politicized in the States, but at least here, you know, it's a little bit, we're on a little bit firmer ground. Um, And yet we have somehow still been unable to, in some ways, read that evidence and use it to react more quickly um and in better ways and i mean we're talking about some of this at the beginning but you know like uh we've known for some time that the economy and individual health are linked we've known for some time that reacting faster bigger and with bold and in bolder ways to outbreaks and to the virus yields more successful results and i just continue to be flabbergasted by our unwillingness to learn lessons from the first time we went through this and it makes me worried as a society for when we face more complicated more diffuse issues that will be just as deadly uh, and just as important like climate change so um i think in some ways just restating what you guys have already said but it's that it's that you know this issue we have so much hard evidence that is immediate in a way that we don't often in public policy and we should be able to learn and adapt quicker to it but we've still seen it politicized and we've still taken slow lessons um and that has been that has been worrying and frustrating for me and i'll be i'll be worried about that in the years ahead one question that i like to ask uh our group every year is overreported and underreported story uh this is often something you know that even I, I find like as you know putting together a news podcast we you know sometimes the things that we are the most breathless about and they're most fun to talk about i f- look back on at the end of the year and i'm like should i have given so much of my brain space to that and so yeah i'm curious what do you guys think was the most overreported story and what was the most underreported story i can start looking back i think the overreported that comes to mind was the license plate uh, saga of, of February, which feels like so long ago, but was in 2020. And I think it got people attached themselves to it because it was so symbolic of the general mismanagement and dysfunction of that government at the time. And that, that sort of has been, I think, wiped away with with COVID and a lot of the public sentiment. But um, for what it was, it got a disproportionate 
amount of of attention including i think on our pod um and we definitely talked about it quite a bit um uh, <laughs> i just want i just want the record for the record i loved every second we talked about license plates Fair enough. Uh, but i think you're right um and then underreported i think there's a lot of good candidates hopefully we'll talk about a bunch of them um one of the things i i want to do a deep dive on in 2021 is uh the government's um, gutting and creation of dysfunction in the tribunals. So like the human rights tribunal, the landlord and tenant tribunal or board, uh, huge wait times. I, I looked it up full-time, uh, adjudicators has, um, dropped from 22 to 10. Um, uh, you know, like for, for those that saw it, they're doing these like eviction hearings on zoom and it's just like horrifying to watch. So I just think, um, you know, again, speaking about the conservative playbook, the undermining of of kind of rights based frameworks and tribunals is uh, at the center of a lot of that, and it's playing out as predicted and not getting much attention at all. Um, so I hope that we can we can. I mean, we've talked about some of it, but I hope we can shine a light on some of more of it in twenty twenty one. Overreported for me, uh, two things. First of all, do you guys remember when Western alienation was a really big story? That was uh, that was a fun back in twenty twenty in twenty nineteen. Whatever will we do? Exactly. But um, for me, I think the, the the fixation during COVID on this like daily Doug Ford story has been uh, very frustrating to me. Uh, and sometimes it's the minutia of his life. Did he go to the cottage when he should have not gone to the cottage? Did he see his family? You know, what did he bake this week on like TikTok or whatever? But also just the like, here's what Doug Ford said today, every single day, because he says one thing and he does another. And when you only cover what he's saying every day and not sufficiently covering what he's actually doing and who his government is actually doing, and I honestly still don't know if he knows that there's a difference between what he's saying and what his government is doing. But if you don't cover that distinction, then it becomes a really big problem and it's a, a failure of, of journalism. And unfortunately, I think the journalists are set up for this because just the way that um, the COVID situation has prevented their access to uh, to government outside of the incredibly controlled conversations that they do get to call into. Um, I think just puts them at a huge disadvantage, and it's worth remembering uh, that as much as we can. On the underreported side of things, I mean, there's so many to choose from. I'll quickly, I'll just say, how the hell is long term care not still a scandal? Like, how how did we just sort of move on from? the terrible situation in so many long-term care homes. And it's like coming back in many places. So many people have died there. Hopefully there will be some kind of, um, you know, longer term reassessment, but uh, I'm just shocked at how quickly that story died and people moved on. Um, the Canada emergency wage subsidy is one that I think for me was underreported. This is uh, the latest price tag on this through June of 2021 was uh, $97.6 billion. So the federal government is spending almost $100 billion on this wage subsidy, much more than on CERB. We got so many articles about CERB and know very little about how this wage subsidy is doing in terms of its effectiveness, how, how businesses are using it, big businesses, small businesses, um, even the nonprofit sector is getting a lot of this money. Uh, and that has been completely underreported from my perspective. Uh, and then the last thing I'll throw in there is uh, learning gaps in schools. I think we've talked a lot about safety in schools and there's not been sufficient attention to the impact of closing schools on the long-term interests and outcomes for kids, particularly kids who are already challenged at keeping up um, uh, because of other uh, issues of marginalization. Uh, and I think that needs to be a bigger narrative in the, the school safety uh, discussions moving forward. I want to declare that I believe Alexi cheated by getting three, but thank you. That's true. Too bad. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I agree with both Sam and Alexi, but, and to, I guess, push back a little bit against, you know, 
while there hasn't been cutting of of some of our social programs during this year in Ontario, it's kind of happened by stealth. And I think that it's important to remember that not everybody that lost their job or lives in poverty was eligible uh, for um, programs and benefits like the SERP. And so in Ontario with social assistance, those who live in deep poverty and either and didn't qualify for CERB got a $100 one-time payment as a bump at the beginning of the pandemic. And that's it. Um, It's not possible to live a life with dignity on the rates provided through SA, especially for working age single adults in the best of times, let alone now. We We all eat. We all know that our grocery bills are are going up. And we see this in the food bank usage data that food bank usage is going up during this time. And I just, I, for the life of me, again, when it comes to the question of inequities and who's benefiting from significant investments in public services um, and versus those who aren't, people who live in deep poverty have been left behind. And for those who do receive the CERB and social assistance. Um, at the beginning, they were able to keep some of their of their social assistance on top of the CERB, and now they're having their SA clawed back dollar for dollar. Um, this essentially means that the province has saved a lot of money, and they're not reinvesting it back into into people that really need it. And so, from my perspective, I think that that is a really underreported story and something that we ought to follow. They're saying that those who got federal benefits before October 2020 can keep their health benefits and other benefits until March at March of 2021. And I I mean nobody's under the illusion that this pandemic's going to be over by then. And so why create this uncertainty for people that that really need access to things like, I don't know, medicines during the midst of a pandemic. Um, I just, it's just really, really unfair. It's deeply underreported and something that I'm hopeful that we continue to follow, at least on the pod and shine a light on. I, I so I will confess that I had Doug Ford's renewal as a post-partisan political genius as my uh, overreported. Um, you know, looking at you, McLean's magazine. But I actually think, yeah, building on that, this year has confirmed so many of our our biases, and in fact, maybe sort of how we want to go back to some of those biases. Like I think about all the time this summer that we spent talking about basic income and not that basic income is an unworthy debate or anything like that um but it it really seems like we spent a lot of time talking about the fact that we were giving so much money to individuals and should we continue giving money to individuals without any kind of nuance as to how and who and why just in everything that you guys are saying i'm i'm hearing um, it's just been something that's been re- sitting in my head. So I'm going to I'm going to change my overreported from perhaps daily Doug Ford story or perhaps Doug Ford somehow renewal as postpartisan political genius, um, you know, who's best friends with Christian Freeland and Justin Trudeau to maybe 
uh, to maybe reinforce that. Also, honorable mention to we in that category. Uh, you know, I you know remember when all we could do every day was talk about we um, in every newspaper or at least the Globe and Mail. Uh, underreported, I think. On Ontario Loud were better though. Let's let's be fair. Yes, just because it was overreported doesn't mean that I regret our coverage of these issues. Thank you. But yeah, I, I want to also just on underreported reinforce uh, the. Uh, follow-ups on some of these sort of key pieces like Alexi you talked about long-term care we've now had two major letters from the commission on long-term care that they got and I think what you know the CBC valiantly covered one article on each um, but you know this is set to be a scandal again the commission is releasing recommendations that are quite critical of what the government is doing we've talked about those on previous pods but um, you know I think that that's a pattern you can see across several files like we make a big deal about something and we don't follow up on it um you know uh and it's also there's a uh, settings too right like the the current situation in some of these jails the one in kingston and the the um yeah. south southern ontario i forget what the the name is but like dozens of cases and kingston at over 80 uh like this is bad uh these people are not as not as uh, vulnerable as people in uh, long-term care homes but uh, i mean there's they're also just their rights are just being completely trampled on there's not enough ppe they're just being treated like they're not people. Oh yeah, like it's it's. Where are incarcerated people in the vaccination plan? Of like a something that I was thinking about just sort of like right before the show is like the politics of giving prisoners vaccinations above others are obvious, and I get them, but it is still human rights, and actually for people in congregate settings, they should be prioritized. Cool. Well, uh, wanted to do one last policy topic in the year 2020. Uh, as we were mentioning on the top of the pod last week, the Monk School's Ontario 360 project, which is led by former Ontario Loud guest Sean Spear, released a paper on lifelong learning authored by none other than our very own Alexi White, in addition to friend of the pod Andre Cote. The paper covers the topic of how Ontario should be thinking about serving the learning needs of those outside the traditional post-secondary age group of 18 to 24 year olds going to university or college. Um a topic that could be especially important in a world with a less stable, more competitive labor market in a post-COVID era. So, um, Alexi, I just wanted to ask you about a little a bit about this paper. Why this topic? Why now? Why did you feel it was important to put out there? Yeah, thanks for the uh, opportunity for shameless uh, self-promotion, Chris. Uh, always appreciate it. Um, the the impetus for the paper is yeah this the, the a couple of different factors coming together obviously the pandemic uh, has um, been uh, quite impactful on the labor market we've seen huge continued unemployment we're looking at over a quarter million Ontarians still uh, still unemployed um, as well the higher education sector has obviously been hit hard campuses shuttered uh, and if it wasn't for international student uh, um, enrollments we would have a major funding. Uh, issue on our hands in higher education in Ontario. So uh, a couple of different things coming together uh, and with a lot of people uh, looking for new jobs as well as just even prior to the pandemic, uh, accelerating pace of change in the labor market resulting in a lot more dislocation um, and not just you know traditional sort of low educated uh, male dominated jobs, but increasingly middle middle skilled jobs, increasingly jobs that women uh, are, uh, are in as well. Um, just a bigger slice of the population being uh, open to this. Um, this is an opportunity for higher education to step up and really get into the lifelong learning market in a way they haven't before, try to diversify the revenue streams while also serving these populations. So the idea behind the paper was, can we get beyond the kind of, you know, the, like the, we need more lifelong learning to, uh, actually talk about, well, what, what does successful lifelong learning models look like, uh, at the institutional level, uh, in other places around the world? We looked at 
um, schools in the U.S., uh, here in Ontario, um, in uh, New Zealand, and other uh, examples of, uh, of where people are trying innovative things to try to come up with some, uh, some ideas that our colleges and universities who really want to take a, a stab at this uh, in a real way can, can emulate and learn from. There are, you know, higher education and I think specifically universities, but um, uh, are well known to be slow moving, slow to change organizations. No. And so, you know, like if we're looking at, uh, as the paper argues, a workforce that is going to need to be better served by more stackable, more online, like, you know, n- not every credential requiring you to take a year to four years off of your life to go and get a degree or something like that. Um, You know, what barriers are standing in the way of us being in a place where that uh, living in a place where that is on offer? Yeah. I mean, so colleges less so, but universities especially are very sclerotic institutions. They're very slow to change. We're still ingrained in the same models of pedagogy and uh, program organization that we have been for hundreds of years. Uh, and that does need to change. And so I think what, what we've been getting right is that we have very strong colleges and universities. Uh, we have had an, uh, an emphasis on vocational um you know, vocational programs for a long time. Uh, we have a, a decent uh, workforce development system in Ontario, and the government is playing around with it. And the impacts of that, of course, are uh, quite concerning, but we'll see where that goes. There are some interesting innovations. Fleming College is one of the schools that we look at in the report that's working with the government on that employment um, uh, workforce development uh, overhaul. And maybe that will actually show huge opportunities for colleges uh, to be more integrated into the employment um, system uh, in the future, right? So, um, anyway, there's 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 some some good things going on. The question is, how do we incentivize people to try new things? Uh, and we like to highlight those who are doing well. We looked at the Chang School at Ryerson, which has done incredibly well in continuing education, and that seems to come mostly from. Uh, their culture, going back to being a polytechnic and a college of, of caring about this this kind of stuff. And we saw that in some of the schools in the United States. We looked at Penn State in the U.S., which also has a very long-distance education culture, and that seems to be why they've been so successful. So cultural change is a big part of this. And for those institutions that uh, have a, a difficult culture that, um, that doesn't want to change, there are options there too. Uh, we've seen institutions successfully create spin-off corporations uh, that uh, are much more nimble and able to innovate in the uh, lifelong learning space. Um, There's also opportunities to partner with private organizations. Those come with pitfalls, of course, uh, but online program managers uh, have been successful uh, in some places. Laurier is the best example in Ontario that we could find, but increasingly in the United States, this is a huge business. um, And as long as it's done right, as I said, there are pitfalls. um, uh, It's an opportunity to scale up quickly. Uh, And then um, partnerships is the other big one. Partnerships directly with industry, with local employers, partnerships between institutions. We have consortia in Ontario like Ontario Learn that already provide a great opportunities for college students to take courses from multiple colleges at the same time. Uh, could that not be expanded to have all colleges share in the development of open courses for more lifelong learning purposes, right? Um, so how do we build on the success that we already have in Ontario while learning from the best practices elsewhere? Well, for Tons more details uh, on that. Uh, Highly recommend checking out uh, the report. Uh, If you just Google Ontario 360, it is the first paper uh, that you will see, uh, providing you're not listening to this pod, I guess. You're listening to this pod in the extremely near future. But uh, no, it's it's good stuff. It actually reminds me a lot of uh, some of the 
uh, some of the thinking that we used to do back when we were in student government together. So, so I think maybe at this point, it's probably good for us to move on to our last item today, which so as we mentioned last week and at the top of this pod, we mentioned that there would be an important Ontario Lab update and here it is. Very sadly, uh, Alexi uh, will be leaving the podcast in the coming weeks to join the BC Human Rights Commissioner's Office, uh, a role which, while I haven't read all of BC's laws and statutes, I can only assume won't allow the kind of random spouting off on political and policy issues we do uh, each week here. So yeah, I mean, I'll maybe just kick off by saying this is a huge loss for uh, us, um, uh, our audience. Uh, Alexi was one of our founding members uh, and is uh, you're consistently thorough and detailed in uh, your segments here and the work that you do behind the scenes. Uh, there is a budget, whole budget special deep dive that is coming out over the course of multiple episodes. So uh, you will not have heard the last, um, but but no, but it, like in the work that you hear as an audience and the work we do behind the scenes, Alexi, you are absolutely instrumental in putting this thing together and keeping it going. Uh, and we're going to miss you a lot. So I thought maybe uh, I'll, I'll give you maybe the the floor first. But um, yeah, I just wanted to say this is a, it, it won't be the same pod without you. No, oh, thanks, Chris. I appreciate that. Uh, obviously, Ontario Lad has been um, one of the things I look forward to uh, every week recording with you guys. And it's just been a great way to stay in touch uh, as friends and to stay in touch with what's happening in Ontario. And I'll definitely miss it uh, tremendously. Um, but uh, I do hope that you I mean, if you guys are looking for a replacement, I'm sure there are other uh, white millennial guys with uh, surface level knowledge and strong opinions out there who uh, would be happy to, um, to to spout those off. So, um, but no, seriously, um, it's it's been fantastic. Uh, and I can't believe that we've been doing this for so long now. Um, and I mean, Alvin left and came back, so there's hope, right? That's that's uh, that's the other thing I'll say. It's true. There's precedent. There's, there's, there's strong precedent. We will miss you quite a bit. I think, I think many listeners of the pod know that our relationship predates you know many many years prior to um this and um it has been a great way to stay in touch and really kind of formalize you know a schedule and conversations that we would have kind of otherwise had together um uh, so we will miss you very much and i think the other thing people may not know is that alexi is definitely the organizational backbone of this podcast uh oh yeah yes. while chris chris is the mastermind behind it um alexi keeps us on task and so uh look out for a more disorganized pod in 2021 <laughs> Yeah, we're gonna. We need some uh, Alexi's absence problem solving conversations because that is one hundred percent accurate. Yeah, and I just wanted to say, well, first of all, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that my direct line to Ontario Loud is Alexi, and so I wouldn't actually. I don't think I'd actually be here if I if I wasn't friends with Alexi from before, and so um, thank you. Um, it, I. I love being on the pod and um, and having these conversations that we have. And I think your your thoughtfulness and your thoroughness and fairness um, in in your reflections on what's happening in Ontario is something that I'm really, really going to miss. I've learned a lot from you. And um, yeah. Uh, you're at the BC Human Rights Commission, which means that we might be able to continue to work together outside of Ontario Loud. Um, so that's great. But um, but yeah, I'm going to really miss you. And um, 
can't wait for you to be back, maybe even as a guest periodically on things that you're working on. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Really a recurring that. weekly guest. <laughs> a recurring <laughs> weekly guest. We, we, we'd like you to answer this definitively right now. I uh, know. Just I'll kidding. I'll run up on my employer. Um, Thanks, guys. <laughs> so before we close off today, uh, as the keeper of the important fiscal update segment, Alexi, one thing we never really settled on is theme music over the time. We've had some hits. We've had some misses, um, mostly misses. Uh, but I'm not a fan of leaving things undone. So I have three finalists that I spent some time on yesterday creating for Ontario Loud Fiscal Update theme music, and I want you to pick one. Uh, these are all sourced from Creative Commons licensed free downloadable music, so, you know, high-quality stuff. Uh, and I put lyrics in them as well uh, with the online free text-to-speech converter that didn't require a monthly subscription. Oh, my God. So you're going to hear... Uh, warning, these are a little strange, but, um, but you know, here's, 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 here's the first one. So... Uh, Finalist for fiscal update. Uh, this one has a techno theme. Just imagine it coming in. Time to get hype. It's a fiscal update. Ontario's in the red. But don't fall for the clickbait. We'll tell you what you need to know about taxes, spending, and even though Don Ford's cuts are full of shit. How long is this? There's lots more we can do if we tax for it. This is dramatically <laughs> too that, long. Did that rhyme? That was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that I, that one was the longest one. That was the first. That was the first one. All right. So on to number two. This one has uh, a bit of a space theme, which I thought you know is just in case it wasn't weird enough already. So it's like, it's time for a fiscal update with numbers and figures from Alexi White. This music sounds like it is from outer space, but also strange like outer space. Oh my God. What is happening? It's how we think don't think of tax cuts as spending, even though they go to mostly rich people. Feels like brainwashing music. Wow. <laughs> Okay. I, I, I put maybe not so subtle Alexi editorial slants in all of these. I don't know if this is a good way to fet your departure, Alexi, but it's the way that I came up with. We have one more. We have one more. This one has a jazz theme. Ooh. Okay. Running out of ideas now for fiscal update intro lyrics. Will smooth jazz help people understand? That Ontario having the highest sub-sovereign debt in the world doesn't actually mean anything. Will smooth jazz soothe the pain in our hearts over Alexi White leaving Ontario loud? And will explain the numbers as well as he can. There are limits to what smooth jazz can do. Wow. That was awesome. So those are them. Amazing. Your three finalists for fiscal update theme music. Such a tough choice. Three amazing pieces of work. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Chris. I like the last one best, but all of them, are, I will treasure all of them. Uh, maybe we'll put up a Twitter poll or something to see if the audience agrees with your choice. But but no, we're really going to miss you. Uh, you know, uh, try to embed our, 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 our sadness in the weirdest way that I could possibly embed the sadness that, uh, that you were leaving. Um, 
but uh yeah uh we will we will continue to stay in touch and um if you can ever find a way to weasel your bay back onto the podcast uh we are always open to that And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Ontario Loud, a podcast about politics and public policy. Ontario Loud is hosted by Sam Andrew, Alexi White, Alvin Tejo, Karima Tower Kapoor, and I'm Chris Martin. We have an amazing research intern in Harmon Mundy. If you have any thoughts about what you heard, you can get at us on Twitter at, at Ontario Loud or go to OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com. Ontario Loud is recorded on the traditional territories of many Indigenous nations uh, in Toronto, uh, the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat. We acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Ontario Loud is also recorded uh, in Vancouver on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh nations. Unceded territory was never given to settlers, it was stolen, and it continues to be occupied and governed by settlers today. So it is important to recognize this history, and even on a podcast where you might be listening somewhere else uh, to acknowledge the, the history of the land that we're on. All right, that's it for us this week. Stay safe, and we'll see you next Tuesday.